You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Proverbs 28 verse 5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Proverbs 21 verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Proverbs 22, 22 to 23, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Proverbs 24, 19 to 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, on August 17, 1980, Lindy Chamberlain, her husband Michael and their three children, Aidan, Regan and nine-week-old Azaria, were camping at the foot of Uluru, then known as Ayers Rock. On their second night there, Lindy came to the communal campfire at the campsite, fed one of her sons a can of baked beans and then headed to the family's tent. Suddenly, her horrified voice pierced through the night air. A dingo had taken her baby. An urgent search was launched, but the body was never found. I mean, you can't even imagine the kind of shock something like this would have been for the Chamberlains but their ordeal was only just beginning. It seemed at first that there could be little doubt about Lindy's story. Witnesses spoke of seeing dingoes in the area. There were dingo tracks leading to and from the tent, and there was large amounts of blood, as Aria's blood, found in and around the tent. For some reason, however, the Northern Territory Police were unconvinced. Uh, When questioning Lindy uh, about what her baby had been wearing, she mentioned that it had a jumpsuit on, but also a little jacket over the top, Uh, This jacket couldn't be found. The jumpsuit was found, but not the little jacket over the top. And so they developed a story that perhaps Lindy had murdered her own baby in the family's car, then hid it, then disposed of the body later. The case then went to trial and there was massive media attention. Almost immediately, Lindy was painted as suspicious. She was condemned for not crying enough in public. It was seen as she wasn't responding the way a stereotypical mother should respond if they've lost their child. Much was made of the fact as well that the Chamberlains belonged to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which was then seen as a kind of cult with bizarre rituals, including killing infants, it was said. Even the child's name, Azaria, it was rumoured to mean sacrifice in the wilderness, and Lindy was said to be a witch, Eventually, in October 1982, Lindy was convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labour. She was pregnant at the time. She was allowed out of incarceration briefly to give birth, but then she was sent straight back without her newborn daughter. Five years later, however, the case was reopened. In a chance coincidence, the British tourist David Brett fell to his death while climbing on Uluru And while searching for his remains in the dense scrub around the base of the rock, police found the long-lost jacket, which proved Lindy's story. The child truly had had this jacket, and now that she was able to be believed and she was released from prison, the case was reopened, and in September 1988, her conviction was overturned. 
and yet not necessarily in the court of public opinion. If you were around in the 1980s or you've spoken to your parents, you'd know everything about this story because people talked about it and everyone had an opinion. I was even talking to a young guy today who had an opinion on it <laughs> and still believes that Lindy was guilty. Many people would say that. In fact, when she was released from prison, people brought out T-shirts saying, watch out, kids, mummy's free. The legal system didn't help either. It was two more inquests, coronial inquests, before her story was uh, affirmed completely that it was truly the dingo who had taken this baby. And so she has lived for years, for decades, with this suspicion hanging over her that she killed her own child. Really, it's a story of injustice, of someone being treated unfairly. And there's so many stories like this. I found a Wikipedia page, Miscarriages of Justice, and there is a lot on there. There's a whole uh, genre, uh, the Cardiff Three, the Guildford Four, the Maguire Seven, the Central Park Five. There's these groups of people who have been falsely accused and punished for crimes they did not commit. Some have even been executed and later it's been discovered that they didn't do that thing. The US has its own separate page because there's so many miscarriages of justice that they have to have their own separate page there. And when you read these stories, what is your reaction? What is your instinctive reaction? I know when I read them, it's this kind of outrage and frustration. This just does not seem fair. It is not just. Well, today in our proverb series, we arrive at the topic of justice. And justice is a legal concept. It's got very exact definitions and we're careful about all of those things. But there's also something instinctive about it. There's something visceral, primitive almost in the way we feel about it. We know deep in our gut that something is just or unjust. And we feel it when we, we have that feeling, when we see it on the news and we see some terrible case that's unjust. But we also feel it in our own lives. When your child doesn't get as many lollies as their brother, they will say that's unfair. When your teenager says, oh, why can't I do what all my other friends are doing? They say it's not fair. Or if you're at work and you don't get the wage that you deserve and someone else does and you get passed over, you feel like it is not fair. It's not just. And the book of Proverbs would agree with you. Proverbs, of course, is a book all about wisdom. And at the heart of wisdom is the idea of doing justice. Chapter 1 says you can read this book so that you can know wisdom and instruction, so that you can know what, how to do wise dealings in righteousness, justice and equity. So this book is, is trying to help us find a way to be just. And it also becomes the kind of litmus test of a wise person or a foolish person. Chapter 28, verse 5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. This is a, a sign. If you respond to justice and injustice, then that shows what kind of heart you have, what kind of mind you have, what kind of person you are. And, of course, you need wisdom to do what is just as well. I just do not envy a judge. They have such an incredibly hard job. Just imagine sitting at the bench and an 18-year-old comes, uh, a case comes to you, he's on a charge of burglary. Perhaps he had a drug addiction, he broke into someone's house so he could get the money for the drugs and he got caught. It's a terrible crime. But as you read through his biography, you, you realise the tragedy of the situation. You look at his past, you realise that he grew up, suffered abuse, neglect, fell in with the wrong crowd 
And now as he stands before you, he looks so young and pathetic and vulnerable. And you have this choice. You know that he could go to jail, but you also know that if you send him to jail, first of all, he's going to be beaten up, he's going to be destroyed in jail. He'll have a criminal record on. He'll have a criminal record for the rest of his life. He'll find it hard to get work. He'll probably end up back in jail—a crime, a, a cycle of crime throughout his life. And so the urge to compassion is probably quite strong. And yet you also are realizing that there is someone else in this story. There's a there's a family now who are terrified when they go home. They wake up at the slightest little noise. They don't feel safe in their own home now. So what does justice look like for them? And then you think about the larger society. How do we create and ensure that we have a a society that's safe, where people know that crimes are punished? What does justice look like? You can see that it requires wisdom. We need the wisdom that God offers. He offers us the wisdom in Proverbs. And tonight I want to think about a few things and how we kind of uh, develop that wisdom. And the first thing is to understand the principles of justice. See, Proverbs gives us some of the principles to know how justice works. And the first one is this, that justice begins with God. Justice comes from God. So if you want to uh, be a just person, all you need to do is to ask God for the wisdom to be just. Chapter 2, verse 6, call out for insight. Call out to God for insight. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. So God is willing to give justice. Justice begins with him. God is a just God himself, Psalm 89. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. That's what he does. Everything that he does is just and fair. And and you know how I said before that we have uh, the instinctive, visceral feeling of justice? Proverbs suggests that God is like that too. 11 verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God God himself has has an instinctive, emotional reaction to justice and injustice. And so we do too, because we are made in his likeness, in his image and likeness. As we were told in Genesis 1.27, we're made to represent and to be like God. And that leads to the second principle, that justice is based on our God-given equality. The American Declaration of Independence of 1776 famously says these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's a wonderful statement, and it's really setting the, the, the philosophy of justice in a liberal democracy. Every person should be treated fairly. doesn't matter what colour or creed or culture you are, you should be treated fairly. That's what justice demands. Everyone should get fair justice. And do you notice the reason? Because all men are created equal. We are endowed by our creator with these rights. It's an important insight. That's ultimately, justice comes from God, and ultimately it's because God has created each one of us to be equal. Psalm 139 says that we are handcrafted, that God loved to make each one of us, that God cares about each and every one of us in this room equally, and so we have an equal standing before God and before each other. Justice is based on our equal dignity. 
we all therefore have a right to justice. And the third principle is that justice is a shared responsibility for all and the particular responsibility of the powerful. What I mean is we all need to commit to creating a just society. When God set up the Israelites as his people in the Old Testament, he gave them laws establishing justice and called them to follow those laws so that people would be treated fairly and equally. And we are asked to do the same. We're asked to not rip people off, to not demand special treatment just for ourselves. It's unfair to speak up when, some, when we see something that is unjust. We're all committed to that. That's our common responsibility. But I think it's also fair to say that it is the particular responsibility of the powerful. You see, even though God has created us equal, he has also established systems of hierarchies and positions within society. So he has all authority and then he delegates that authority to different people in society, to leaders, to governors, and it is their particular responsibility to ensure that they use this power to protect others, to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. And there is even like a particular responsibility for them to make sure that those who are the most vulnerable, the most unlikely to be looked after, are looked after. Really, this is the metric by which Proverbs assesses a leader. Proverbs 16, 12, the throne power is established by righteousness, by right dealing. Or 29, 4, by justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts, who, who takes bribes or demands exorbitant taxes, he tears it down. So if you do justly, you will build up your society. If you do unfairly, unjustly, you will tear it down. This is the responsibility, particularly of the government of the leaders of a society. You see, really, when you think about it, justice is the foundation of a safe and a happy society. Just imagine if you live somewhere where you knew that if, if you were wronged, if someone did the wrong thing against you, there's no likelihood that you'll, get, you'll see justice because you know that the police will be bought off, that if you're not wealthy enough, someone will pay a bribe and the judge will rule against you, whatever it is. Or knowing that no matter how hard you work, it won't matter because of your religion or your race or something. You just won't advance in that culture. Or, or imagine you live in a culture where there's no elections. It's a totalitarian state. So it doesn't matter how bad or how corrupt the government is, nothing can change. Now, that's incredibly demoralising, isn't it? Justice is the foundation for a happy and functional society. So there is a demand for people to use their power wisely and carefully. That's what God calls people to do. And it's also for us. I mean, I haven't seen any politicians walk in today. If you are a politician, welcome. <laughs> I didn't see Elbow at our latest Newcomers event. But what we do have is we may have authority in our own lives, in our own spheres of influence. And so it is our responsibility to use that authority wherever we have it to do justly. So perhaps you're running a small business with a few employees. It's incumbent upon you, it's just, to make sure that you pay them a fair wage on time. If you're managing a team in your workplace, you need to think about how you treat each person fairly. You don't just focus all your attention on the people that you like. You do it for everyone. If you're a parent, you need to make sure that you treat each child 
justly. It might be look different, but you need to make sure that each one is treated fairly. If you're, if you're coaching your kid's basketball team, you need to make sure that each guy, each player gets enough time on the court, whatever it is. We are responsible for doing justly in our society or in our community, however big or small it is. Justice is a key thing that we need to do. And yet, as I start talking about that, I can imagine that you're starting to see what I would call the challenges for justice, how prone we are to injustice. See, this beautiful world that God created was set up to be fair and people were treated equally, but sin has started to corrupt that and break that down and made people selfish. And so we, any power that we have, we want to use for ourselves. And so we don't always look after those who are vulnerable. And so justice is left undone. It's kind of two types of justice, what you might call primary justice and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is basically when you, things are put right when they're gone wrong. So someone does a crime, someone is mistreated, and so justice comes in to defend that person and to do them, uh, to, to right the situation. But it's amazing how often that doesn't happen. Sometimes it's obvious that it's not, you know, a judge is bribed, perhaps, or a jury is prejudiced, a witness purges himself, gives false testimony. That's obvious. But then there's also more subtle ways in which this can happen. Imagine, for instance, you're, you're an immigrant, you're arrested somewhere, you don't have much of the language, you don't know your rights, you don't know how to secure justice for yourself. Or imagine you're up against someone who's very wealthy and they can afford a better lawyer and so they get off the charge. Often rectifying justice doesn't happen and God rails against this, Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. See, there's often... We're supposed to be treated equally before the law, but often there are some groups of people who are not treated equally. There are people who are poorer, who are more vulnerable, who don't receive justice the way others should. And that points to that second problem, the lack of primary justice. Primary justice is basically making sure that every person receives fair and equal treatment regardless of their racial or economic status or their social status. Everyone is truly treated equal, like we said. That's the principle. How do we ensure that primary justice happens? And we're not just talking here about the legal courts. We're talking about life itself. Does every single person have the same kinds of opportunities? Is it fair? Because if we look around us, we realise that it's often not fair. Let's take two kids, a boy and a girl, born on the same day here in Australia. The boy is born into Camberwell, perhaps a nice family where both parents are working in professional jobs. He grows up, goes to a big school, gets private tutoring. His parents can afford all of these things. The girl, meanwhile, has a very different experience. She grows up perhaps in a remote community in Cape York or something like that. It's a broken family. There's very little money. Her local school is under-resourced. She's not even able to get there often because her family needs her at home. These two people have very different stories, don't they? Now, before God, they are equal. They are equally important. God has lovingly handcrafted both of them 
in the eyes of the state. They are also, they have the same amounts of votes won at the election. But in reality, in their life, we can see that their stories are very different. They don't have the same equal opportunities. This boy is set up for success. He'll probably do well at school, go to university, get a good job. He might even kind of develop a network so he's invited into the realms of power and politics. The girl, though, has a much tougher road ahead. She might drop out of school. She might end up on welfare. Maybe she has a, has a child when she's young and they go, and there's a cycle of poverty that continues on. That's not a given. The boy might stuff it up. The girl might find a way to get above her circumstances. And I'm also not saying that they're not both responsible for their decisions. We are still responsible for what we do. But it is clear that she has a much tougher road ahead. But this is not actually properly fair. It doesn't seem just. And yet it seems impossible to do anything about it. Like people spend their whole lives trying to fix this kind of injustice. And it often seems like a hopeless cause. But that's where Proverbs comes in because it points us to the third thing, the promise of ultimate justice. The author, Lee Child, uh, he's the guy who came up with the Jack Reacher character you might have heard of. He says that the purpose of fiction is essentially to give people what they don't get in real life. So he writes books about crime and justice because he says, I'm aware that readers need an antidote to an unsatisfactory everyday reality. He says, if their car is stolen, they'll never get it back. If their house is burgled, they'll never see their stuff again and the police will never catch the burglars. But they will in a book. By the end of the story, order will be restored. He's giving people what they want. What do we want? We want ultimate justice. We want wrongs to be righted. We want sin to be punished. We want virtue to be rewarded. We want to see justice, full, lasting justice. There's a guy in the morning, uh, morning church, who uh, got completely uh, worked over by a business associate. He's going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. But he knows that he can't sue this guy because it'll be too risky. The guy will probably win. He won't see his money. He'll just get in a worse financial hole. He wants justice. We see horrible politicians dodging corruption inquiries and we want to see them brought to account. We hear about uh, Christians being persecuted around the world and overseas and we think, when will there be justice? What is God doing about this? When's he going to step in? Well, the answer of Proverbs is that God will step in. He will do something about it. Chapter 11, verse 21, be assured an evil person will not go unpunished. That justice that you want will happen. See, see, we worry that it won't happen. We get so frustrated by that. The book of Proverbs tells us that it will happen. It might not happen straight away. It might not happen even in this life. But God will make sure that it happens. Chapter 24, verse 19, fret not yourself because of evildoers. He's saying, I know that you're frustrated, but fret not yourself. Be not envious of the wicked and how comfortable they are, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So God is offering that promise to us. If you're hungering, if you're longing for justice, 
It will happen. That's his promise. And he says that as a comfort to us. But surely he also says it as a warning as well. You see, we want to see God judge wrongdoing. We want to see God judge sin. But the problem is we're sinners too. Romans 3 says that none is righteous. None of us does the right thing all the time. No, not one. No one does good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the bar. We fall below it. And so we all face God's judgment. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. God can search your heart and my heart and test our minds and he will give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so if God will judge the wicked, he must also judge us. Now, some of you might be thinking, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. <laughs> like, I'm not wicked. Like, I, I don't steal stuff from people. I don't abuse people. I recycle my cans. I'm a good person. Right? But I wonder if that really stacks up. I mean, let's just take this concept of justice. Just, just, let's just look at that just alone. Have there been times where you have treated someone unfairly, where you've shown partiality to one person over another? because you liked them more, you thought they were cute, you wanted to get to know them, whatever it was, you showed partiality. James 2 says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Like, you've already fallen short. And have there been times where we have failed to do justice? You know, you've ignored the plight of those who are oppressed or, or you've seen an injustice in your workplace or in your school or in, in your family and you haven't done anything to step in, to correct it, to defend someone who was vulnerable. Or if you looked around you and seen the lack of primary justice, systems in our world, in our land, in our nation, that are unjust, and you haven't done anything about them. And God says, we are not just. And I actually really want to press with us that last point about looking around us and not doing enough to ensure that there is primary justice around us. If you've been at this church for longer than five minutes, you will have worked out probably that I'm pretty conservative. <laughs> I'm conservative ethically, I'm conservative politically. And within conservative circles, there is an instinctive defensiveness about questions of justice. So we write off churches that just do what we call social justice. We say, no, 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 you actually really need to teach the gospel as well. Social justice is not enough. Right? We say that. We're sceptical of concepts like systemic racism perhaps or we balk at the idea of inherent white guilt or something like that. And anything that's got Marxism on it is just self-defeating, critical race theory. It's nonsense. Very dangerous. Right? I've got another thousand words that I had to cut out about equity and equality and the difference and how I don't think, I think we can seek equal opportunity but not equal outcomes. Like, I've got all the theory. Don't worry, I've got it. But I wonder if we're actually hiding behind some of that and actually using our critiques as a cover for just injustice. 
See, the Bible is clear that we must care for those who are vulnerable, for those who are on the underside of the society. That's the heart of God. When you read the Psalms, you see the heart of God. Psalm 68.5, he is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Like, like when you introduce yourself, you say, all right, okay, I'm, I'm Luke, I'm a pastor because that's kind of the thing that defines a lot of my life. God introduces himself and says, I am father of the fatherless, protector of widows. That's his heart. That's his desire. Psalm 103 is the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 140, 12, the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. That's what God's all about. Psalm 72 says that uh, precious is the blood of those who are vulnerable in his sight. Precious are the vulnerable. That's the heart of God. And so the heart of his people should reflect that, should be the same. We should be like this. And actually, Proverbs makes it clear that that's what true religion looks like. Psalm 23, uh, Proverbs 23, 21, 3. To do justice, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. He's saying, you know, in a Jewish culture, you could come to the temple and do your sacrifices. You could do all of these impressive, important things, but it wouldn't matter if you weren't pursuing justice. That's the same for us. We can have nice, good, solid, quiet times. We can have good middle-class values. We can be neat and tidy. But if we're not doing justice, then God will come after us. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So are we doing those things? Are, are we doing anything like that? I fear we're not doing enough. Basil the Great, the great thinker of the 300s, said, as often as you were able to help others and refused, so often did you do them wrong. What are we doing with what we have? Are we opening our mouths for those who are mute, as Proverbs puts it? So God is actually just in judging us. God will judge the unjust and so he will judge us. He will judge fairly because that's how God works and he will judge exactly. Jeremiah 32, 19, his eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways. So God will judge us. And so we face his punishment. But wonderfully and miraculously, God offers us a path to forgiveness and salvation by fulfilling all of the justice himself. That's what Jesus did. See, God must judge sin. The universe would fall apart if God failed to judge sin. It, it relies, it is upheld by a just God. So God must judge sin. He must judge our sin. But the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus takes that judgment for us. Isaiah 53, he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon his chast- upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In faith we confess our sins to God and we say, I'm sorry for being unjust and sinful. I give you my sins and Jesus carries them and pays the price that we deserve. Now, God is completely just in all of this. There is not one little iota of justice that isn't met. He doesn't overlook anything. What he does, though, is he passes all of it over to Jesus. Jesus takes the full punishment that we deserve for our sin. He fulfills justice for us. What an extraordinary message. And that's what we can have. If we trust and trust ourselves to Jesus, the judgment that we deserve, we don't have to face. Jesus takes it all for us. This is the message of Christianity, that God, the just God, judges our sin, but through Jesus, and we have life. And when he does that, he also starts to give a new life to us. In this last section, I want to think about what does it look like for us to live a life pursuing justice? The three things. The first thing is that we will now have justice in our hearts. What I mean is, we will start to have the heart of God for justice. As I've been reading this week some of the verses about God's character and his commitment to justice, I've just been amazed by how beautiful they are. In Psalm 146, 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners and these vulnerable people who are travelling. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. That's what he cares about. Deuteronomy 10, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This is our God. He is a beautiful God, a kind and a loving God. That's his heart. And now as we come under his rule, we start to become like that. The message of Christianity is that God comes to live inside us through the Holy Spirit. And so we start to be transformed. We start to become like God. And so our hearts start to want justice and to pursue justice and to lay down our own needs and our own desires so that we can serve others. See, we were made to be just in the garden. That's what it was like for Adam and Eve. And now through the Spirit, we are remade to be just. Our hearts are changed. We have justice in our hearts. And then secondly, we start to have justice in the church. See, wherever God is ruling, wherever people are submitting to his rule, justice starts to happen. Justice is in the hearts of these people. And then we come together and justice starts to flow between us, starts to come out of us. As we gather, this place becomes a place of equality, of fairness. We start to experience what a just world looks like. We start to show each other what a just world looks like. We treat each other with fairness and love. That doesn't mean there aren't roles. Of course, that's still part of God's creation. But we treat each other with an equal dignity. We were made that way and now we've been saved to be that way. So we recognise our equality together. And so we start to build a just community here, justice in the church. And then thirdly, we start to do justice through the church. 
This environment here starts to go out into the world around us and we bring justice in the world. That's why I love things like Operation Christmas Child. That's a way for us to care for those who don't have as much as we do. That is a way for us to look after the fatherless, the sojourner, the asylum seeker, the refugee, whatever it is, these people who have nothing, we can start to provide them something, something practical and physical, but also something spiritual. And that stat, one in five kids might come to faith through these things. If we, if we do 200 boxes, that's 40 people whose lives will be changed, and not just their lives, their eternity will be changed. That's a good thing for us to be doing. But that's a long way away, though, isn't it? We'll never meet those people until heaven. What can we do here? And one of my friends is doing teaching rounds at a, a state school not far from here, and it is brutal. Many of us are associated with uh, Heefdale Christian College, of course, and we need to remember that our school is really a unicorn. Like, most schools are not like this, right? It's wild out there. And she's saying this, there's a complete disinterest in learning. Kids often don't bother turning up, or if they do turn up, they just sit there with their AirPods in their ears, not even bothering to listen. They're swearing, they're fighting in class, they're hurling racial slurs at each other. There's there's no microaggressions here, these are maxi-aggressions, right? They're threatening the teachers, threatening to kill them, destroy them with a rumour that would destroy their career. And I just got so overwhelmed hearing about this. You see, these kids have very little hope of advancing, don't they? Like, they're not going to get a proper education. Even if there are some kids who want an education, they're not going to get it. So just the class is wild. They might still find a way to get through, but they're going to struggle. They will not have the kinds of opportunities that other people have, that many of us have had. These are the people around us. These are the people in our area. We're city on a hill, Melbourne West. We want to be a church that is a light for the world. We have a specific mission field, the western suburbs. We want to be a church that is a light to the western suburbs. We want to be a beacon of hope, a place where people come to and receive life. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to bring life into the communities around us? It's a good question because I know that you probably want to do something, but how do you actually do it? You need something to get involved with. And so we want to help you with that. Uh, Carmen, who oversees our services ministries, she's been exploring a number of opportunities for us. Uh, there's a, a thing called the West Footscray Neighbourhood House just on Barclay Street, a few streets away. Uh, They do some amazing things, looking after vulnerable people in the area around this building. We've also been speaking to the Wyndham Park Community Centre on Kookaburra Avenue and Hoppers Crossing. They run a food relief program that helps 170 families every week. There's a lot. These are families who are people who are homeless, single mums, victims of domestic violence perhaps, asylum seekers, people living in their cars, pensioners. There's a whole range of people. These are people in our world some of our neighbourhoods, what a wonderful way that we could help and support them. If if you're living in Wyndham or you're part of a gospel community in Wyndham, why don't we become a part of this? We're exploring this together. You'll also remember that last year we spoke about the Babes Project. 
The Babes Project was started by a Christian and its goal is to empower and to support women in their pregnancy and early parenting. As a church, we are theologically and ethically uh, pro-life. We want to protect life of the unborn, but it's fine to have that as an ethic. You have to actually do something practical about it. And so we're really excited by what they do. They do some fantastic one-to-one support, practical workshops and so on. They, they give gifts, for, provide goods for people when they need it, like nappies and so on. And when I talked about this last year, it was about 30 of you who expressed interest in that. And I want to let you know that we haven't forgotten about that. I want to also confess that uh, stuff with the building has kind of taken over my time, and so I haven't been able to revisit that. But you know what? That's actually not good enough. I've become a bottleneck. Things haven't progressed because of me. And so I want to make sure that I get out of the way and give someone the chance to take this forward. So in your notes, your sermon notes, you'll see there's a little position description, a link to that. I'm looking for someone who can spearhead this work, who can explore and assess what's out there, build on some of the research we've done, then build connections with people in the field, see how we can get more involved, consider how we might even develop something like this ourselves. It's a volunteer position at this point, but I want to see it grow. I want to see it develop. So I want you to have a think about it, to pray about it, and come and talk to me. If that is you, I want this to happen. It's exciting that we get to have this building. We want to have uh, this place to be a good place. We want it to be a good thing, but it will only be a great thing if we truly become a city on a hill, a light for those around us. You see, we can have a genuine and real impact. It's easy for us to feel overwhelmed. There's so much to do, how are we ever going to do anything? But Proverbs actually gives us a picture of how God's people can do something. Chapter 11, verse 10 and 11 says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoice. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. So so when God's people are contributing and doing good things in the community, everyone benefits. The world around us will benefit and they will be thankful for us. I remember someone putting it like this. Um, Be the kind of church where if you weren't there, everyone would miss you. Just imagine, like like our building here, it looks like Sputnik, that Russian satellite. Imagine one day it just flew away like a satellite and it was gone and we were gone and everyone said, I wish they were still here. I miss City on a Hill West. They were doing such great things in our community. Let's be that kind of church. Jesus said he was trying to find a way to describe the kingdom of God. He said it's like a little mustard seed. This is a tiny little thing, but it grows into a great tree so the birds can build their nests in it. What a beautiful picture. We start small. We're not lots of people. We don't have massive resources, but we can do something. We can be a mustard seed that grows into a tree that others can be blessed by. Tim Keller says, If you knew God was going to help you succeed, where would you start? The problem seems too big. What if God promised to help us? Where would we start? What would we do? We can certainly start with prayer. Why don't we do that? Father God, you are a just God, a good and a fair God. We thank you that you created us equally 
you've given us an equality and a dignity. We thank you that um, the, the great instinct that our world has for people to be treated fairly comes ultimately from you. Uh, Lord, we confess so that often we don't treat people equally or we just uh, benefit from others and don't think about those who are left behind. Forgive us for this. Help us, Lord, to be a just people. We thank you, Jesus, that you took our sin. There is not one little bit that you didn't take. There's not some leftover that we have to deal with. There's not some justice that still has to be fulfilled. It was all finished on the cross. You completed it. We thank you that you did that. Now, Lord, we ask that you will give justice in our hearts, that the kindness and grace that you showed will be shown through us in our church and in the world around us. We ask that we might truly be a city on a hill here, that we might be the church that if we weren't here, people would miss us. Lord, please do something through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.